0: The last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 2. There are seven churches mentioned here. We're going to look at one of them today. Revelation chapter 2. Today we will look at the church of loveless orthodoxy. Orthodoxy has to do with doctrine and truth, in case you're wondering. This was a church that, it's an interesting church, but... uh, We're going to look at it and see what Christ had to say to it. If you have a red-letter edition Bible, you notice these words are in red-letter ink because these are the words of the head of the church. If you've ever had to move to a different community, you had to select a new church, you know how difficult that can be to really get to the heart of a church and examine what is the heart of that church how do you evaluate a church in its ministry I mean yes sure you can you can attend a church and you can you can sing with them and read the scripture with them and listen to the sermons and, and fellowship with them and and look at the church library and church libraries will tell you something about a church the songs they sing will tell you something the sermons will tell you something you can read their doctrinal statement and constitution and those things are helpful and I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. They, they are helpful in evaluating the church. But needless to say, sometimes it's, it's still hard to evaluate a church, to get to its heart. And sometimes you can walk into to churches that have buildings, and they might have big, imposing, beautiful buildings with stained glass windows or whatever, but in the midst of those buildings you have dead congregations sometimes. Sometimes you can walk into, hopefully, our church, I hope, this would describe us you know we don't even own our own building and this hall is not impressive at all it's beat up run down sometimes cold or hot or whatever but nevertheless hopefully sometimes in in where churches meet in modest buildings it can have healthy thriving congregations that was certainly the case in the church that uh, we moved to uh, for our home church several years ago in the states when we were when we were back in the States, we had to change churches, because the church I grew up in was, wasn't healthy, sadly. So we, we moved to a totally different state, a long ways away, moved to a different state to find this, this church that we knew of. We thought we were lost, by the way. The first Sunday we went there, this, this, this little congregation of 100 people uh, was, was meeting in a, in a community hall in the middle of a cornfield. I'm serious. They were in a community hall in the middle of a cornfield. I was like, we thought we were lost what have we gotten ourselves into? but we were so blessed to have moved. It was a healthy church, still is a healthy church lord willing I uh, we, we still have contact with my elders there, and they're always a blessing but you know for, for those big churches in the city you know they would have you know stained glass windows and you know huge auditoriums and uh, you know the, the list goes on and on you know they, they would say you know meeting in a community hall in the middle of a cornfield come on can't have a nice church and do that i'm sure there were some in the bible times who thought that way many of them didn't have church buildings either by the way but uh sometimes that's we we tend to think that that the church that is you know rich in, in our in our human eyes sometimes actually turns turns out to be poor in god's sight and we see that taking place here in, in these churches here in Revelation. But then sometimes the, the, the so-called church, as you look at human eyes, you might think, well, that church is poor. I mean, they don't even have their own building. They don't have very many people. Nobody in the church is rich. And sometimes God gives that kind of a church, the, they put them in, God puts them in the category of rich. The reality is only the head of the church knows the true state of the church, and the head of the church is Jesus. He sees all, and he is, he is the one who accurately inspects the church because the church is made of individuals, believing individuals, and he sees the heart. He knows our thoughts. He can give true, true uh, reality checks. He reveals what's going on because he sees our thoughts and the internals. We have a message to the church of Ephesus here. This was a real church, a literal church, in the place of Ephesus, and the Lord is, uh, if you kind of try to think of our Lord as a, a doctor, if you will, and he's, he, he's, he's x-rayed the church, and he's revealing, As you've, if you've seen x-rays, you know, they, they show you stuff on the inside of your body, right? Sometimes things you don't want to be there. Well, that's what Jesus Christ has done for the church of Ephesus, he's He's given the x-ray, and he's showing, hey, you've got a tumor, and it's a bad one. But may I remind you, as the Lord speaks to the church, corporately speaking, he also speaks to individuals because a church is made of believing individuals. And this is where you and I come in, lest you and I sit here and think, well, this, this has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you because Jesus is still the head of the church, and he is still using these messages to speak to his people today. I want you to see our church is made of individuals. I could name you by name. You are an individual. And so you need to de- you determine, really, the spiritual life of our church. Our church is only going to be as healthy as, really, the, 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 the weakest one, right? You've heard that phrase before, I'm sure. And so this message has to be applied to us personally. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this city. Because if you understand the city of Ephesus a little bit, it'll help you to understand the church. Because this church, who was made of individuals, lived in a literal city. The city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a thriving metropolis. I've given you a few pictures, by the way. um, Oh, I haven't got there yet. But anyway, we'll get there in a moment. Uh, It was a thriving metropolis in the first century. Commercially, it was the largest city in the Roman province of Asia. The city was termed a free city in the organizational scheme of the Roman Empire. And a status that, by the way, uh, uh, a status was granted because of their service to the Roman Empire. That's the only way they could have received that free status. The religious life of Ephesus revolved around the worship of a Greek goddess by the name of Artemis. You can see it there. Uh, the the Romans called uh, this this goddess Diana. Diana and Artemis are the same god. That, by the way, this is a statue. Uh, they often made these little statues. I think that one's in the British Museum. But anyway, the, this particular goddess had a huge statue in, in Ephesus, and it was located in a temple. This temple in the next picture, I think, will show you there was... This temple is 425 foot long by 220 feet wide. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's supposedly how it looked. The image of Artemis was one of the most sacred objects of worship in the the ancient world. People would come from far and wide to worship in this beautiful temple to worship Artemis or Diana. So besides being a, a religious center... The temple was also a gathering place for criminals. It was the scene of uh, widespread morality, often associated with the worship of these false gods. Prostitution thrived because of the immoral activities that were actually looked upon as something sacred. Yes, prostitution in the temple was considered something good, worthy, and sacred. And so the prostitutes themselves were even considered priestesses, ...of the god, goddess Artemis or Diana. You can see the next picture, by the way, is the ruins. Uh, that, that's all that's left of the temple where Artemis or Diana was located. So here we have a church located in a hostile environment. The gospel, by the way, won some of its greatest triumphs here in this very hostile environment... In a, in a way, I, I, I kind of liken it to, um, I guess, Hamilton, in a, in, a, in a sense, because we got the Mormon temple here. We got the, the Bible College of the Mormons and their huge library located here. It's the the temple for for New Zealand. Hamilton is a bit like this place of Ephesus, in a way. Paul visited the city, by the way, when Returning from Corinth to Jerusalem, it was at the close of his second missionary journey. The year was about 52. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. And then on his third missionary journey, the the book of Acts says that Paul returned to the city. He spent three years there. The citizens opposed Paul's preaching, and eventually Paul was forced to leave the city of Ephesus, but fortunately he didn't leave before there was a strong church that was built and established. And the Bible says in in Acts that the the church of Ephesus actually became a a great center for the spread of evangelism uh, throughout Asia. But as we come to Revelation 2, verse 1, there's a question that needs to be answered. Who is this person who holds the seven stars in his hand? Because you look at verse... Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Well, if you were here in Sunday school several weeks ago, you'd know the answer because chapter one, Revelation chapter one, answers the question: Who is this person who holds the seven stars in his hands and walks amongst the seven golden candle stands or lampstands? The answer is found, particularly you look at chapter 1, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. and The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So we don't even have to guess what they are because Jesus Christ tells us these seven lampstands, these lights, if you will, are the seven churches mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. And the angels, well, we're not quite sure what they are. Possibly literal angels, but this word is just a general term for messenger. Some interpret it as the pastors or the leaders of these churches. I don't know. doesn't really matter. But nevertheless, we see Christ introducing himself here to this church. He is the one who walks amongst the churches because he is the head of the churches. But we see as the head of the church, him walking amongst the church, he knows the church. He knows a lot about this particular church, and he knows you. Look at Christ's commendation. He gives this church some commendation. Look at verse 2. Look at the first couple words of verse 2. Because Jesus himself says, I know, I know. Jesus says, I know all about this church. uh, this, This word reflects a full and complete knowledge. He knows everything. It depicts absolute clearness of mental vision. He knows their thoughts. He knows their hearts. He knows everything that every individual in that church had done. He knows their programs. He knows their preaching. He knows their offerings. He knows their sins. He knows everything. And the Bible shows us clearly of that truth because Psalm 139 says, uh, Psalm 139, he said, O oh Lord, uh, did I put that? In? Yeah, there it is. One well, Psalm 139, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So we see there, Scripture backs it up, that Christ knows. He knows everything. He knows everything about this church. He knows everything about our church. But what does he specifically know? Let's look at the specific things that Christ mentions here. He gives this church... Several commendations, or, or compliments, if you will. Verse 2 says, I know your works. So we see here that, first of all, this church was a serving church. They had works, and Jesus knew their works. The word works is an interesting word. It's, it talks about their, their schedules. Their weekly schedules were probably filled with all kinds of activities uh, you know, some churches have, like, bus ministries. Maybe they had a chariot ministry. Maybe they have an orphanage ministry. Maybe they, had, maybe they went and knocked on people's doors and told them about Christ. I don't know. Maybe they, uh, maybe they took up offerings for other churches. I don't know what they did. But Jesus just says, I know your works. Their church was filled with all these activities. They were doing good things. But number two, they were also a sacrificing church because we see Christ mentions, not only does he know their works, he says, I know your labor. He knew their labor. He knows their labor. The word labor means toil to the point of sweat and exhaustion. They were working hard. It describes an all-out effort demanding all that a person has to give uh, in, in regards to physically, mentally, and emotionally. Ever been there and done that? You're just giving physically, emotionally, mentally. And, and by the time you're giving in that manner, you're just exhausted. You just want to sleep. That's the way this church was. The Ephesians were diligent workers for the cause of Christ. They, they, didn't, they, they weren't uh, uh, one of these kind of Christians that had a, spend, a spectator mentality. Uh, in, in the midst of this pagan society, they lived in an emphasis In the midst of the idolaters that they were surrounded by, they were aggressive in evangelizing the lost, they were uh, involved in the edification of of their fellow believers, and they were caring for their community. But number three, Christ said they were a steadfast church. He says, not only do I know your works and your labor, but he says your patience. Your patience. The word patience means endurance under trial patience in trying circumstances. In other words, they kept going even when the going got tough. It must have been difficult because Christ knew about their patience. So it must have been difficult for them living in a place that had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, a place that had the goddess Diana or Artemis. They were patient, nevertheless. The word patience doesn't by the way, denote a fatalistic resignation. <laughs> That's not what it's talking about. It has the idea of courageous exception or acceptance of hardship, suffering, and loss. They were courageous. And so despite their difficult circumstances, the church remained faithful to the Lord, apparently. And so Jesus commended them for that. Now there's two kinds of people in every church. Every church has this. Sadly, we have it as well. There are workers and shirkers. By the way, let me just tell you, we we need help in various areas. Okay, there are many areas that our church needs help in. Uh, one of those being setting up setting up on Sunday mornings. So if God calls you to do that, we could use your help. And just needless to say, every church has this problem, where there's workers and shirkers. It's it's a, really a sad state of affairs in churches where uh, less than twenty percent of the people usually who who actively attend the church, or are involved in any type of ministry. That's usually the way it is. And in fact, in many churches, you have 10% of the people who are doing 90% of the work. shouldn't be that way, but that's often the way it is. That doesn't make for a very healthy body, because the church is described as a body, right? Imagine if only 10% of your body did 90% of the work. How would your body be? Well, I can tell you your body would start cramping up. You'd you'd have some some serious back problems. You'd start getting headaches and you'd you, you know, one part of your body starts trying to compensate for the other body that's not working. You know, you get one leg has to start dragging the other leg around and your back starts going out and when your back goes out, you get headaches because you get all these tension tension going on in your muscles and your body just falls apart. That's what happens in churches. Churches aren't very healthy a lot of times because a small minority of the people are doing most of the work. They grow weary. Those 10-20% of the people grow weary in well-doing. It shouldn't be that way, but they do. Let me encourage you, if you're one of the shirkers, become a worker. Number four, Christ recognized that they were a sensitive church. They were a sensitive church. You look at verse 2, he says, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. They were discerning, in other words. That's the word I like to use here. They were a discerning church. They knew those who were evil. They held to a high and a holy standard of behavior. They were sensitive to sin. That They had a keen eye and a heart, if you will, for sin. And they were also very careful in examining any visiting preachers that might come along. They were careful in looking. They didn't have blogs back then, but if they did, they would, they'd, they'd look at the blogs and they'd discern the good ones from the bad. They could look at the, the Christian periodicals and read the, and see the rubbish there and the good stuff. They could look at the Christian books and say, that guy's a heretic, praise God for this command. They, they were discerning. That's the kind of people they were. They did this because... The Apostle Paul, by the way, had warned the Ephesians and the elders that false teachers would come in from the outside. And Paul even told them in Acts chapter 20: even from within you will arise wolves in sheep's clothing. They'll, they'll dress up and they'll talk like a, a sheep. Beware of them. Acts 20: here it is. Paul said, it should be up there. There it is. Acts 20. Paul said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. You see what Paul's saying there. Paul knew what would happen. False teachers, by the way, always pose great danger to churches. Jesus even himself warned of false prophets in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus understood this as well, didn't he? The apostle John himself, had, in, who, who wrote the book of Revelation, he instructed the, uh, uh, the, the, the people here to try the spirits. 1 John 4 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets had gone out into the world. And so, my friends, we, we need to beware. You and I need to beware, because I'll remind you that uh, Satan is not that uh, strange-looking red guy with the long tail and the pitchfork and the horns, that's not Satan. He's not that obvious. Oh, I wish he did come that way, because we wouldn't need discernment. It'd be easy to spot him. But he's not the red suit man with the horns and the pitchfork and the long tail. In fact, Satan has his his false ministers and sometimes they're pastors. Sometimes Satan's ministers are men who have been ordained to the gospel ministry, who stand in the pulpit and... And, and appear like they're even preaching the Bible. Sometimes they're church members. Sometimes Satan's ministers are church members who come in who aren't even Christians. Jesus talked about them in Matthew 7. Jesus said, you know, beware. You know, beware of those who say, Lord, Lord, and go about doing all these wonderful good works, because Jesus said, beware, because some of them are false prophets. False professions of faith. Jesus said, you know, depart from me, I never knew you. Paul confronted false teachers in Corinth. He unmasked them with this description in chapter 11. He said, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So I want you to see that Satan is deceitful. Beware, and beware of his ministers. Number five, Jesus said that they were a suffering church. Look at verse three. Jesus said they were a suffering church because he says in verse three, you have Persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So the believers at Ephesus were suffering, probably as a result of being in such such close proximity to this, to, to this ancient wonder of the world that had the worship of Artemis and Diana. They were bearing under the, the burdens of this, they were toiling without fainting. And notice it says, they were doing this for whose sake? For Christ's sake. They were doing it all for the sake of Christ and his cause. Number six, they were a separated church. They were a separated church. Look at verse six. But this you have, Christ says, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now why did Christ hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, you might ask. Christ says he hates the deeds of Nicolaitans, and he commends them that they saw the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and they too hated the deeds. Well, Ephesian Christians separated themselves here. But why did they do this? We see they separated them not, themselves not only from the false doctrine, but also from the false deeds of these people. Now, there's great mystery that, frankly, that surrounds the identity of the Nicolaitans, uh, Nobody's really quite sure uh, who these people are. What were their deeds? We, we have some pretty good explanations, but uh, let me read you one explanation from this commentator. Maybe you'll find this helpful. Here's what he says. Quote, it's on the screen. The explanation that takes the Nicolaitans to be composed of followers of Nicholas of Antioch has strong support in the early church. Added to Irenaeus are the testimonies of Several men, you'll see there. These are all various uh, early church fathers. Anyway, they all say this was a sect of sexually immoral people who rejected fixed moral laws. They also believed that matter is evil, therefore Jesus cannot be human. Whoa. Jesus cannot be human? Anyway, he goes on to say, they were a heretical sect who... Retain pagan practices like idolatry and immorality contrary to the thought and conduct required in Christian churches. End quote. I hope you have a few problems with with that quote there because if that's really the way the Nicolaitans were, they should have discerned their deeds and their doctrine and separated from it. Praise God they did. But at this point, you might be thinking, well, hey, this is a pretty good church, isn't it? I mean, Jesus had a lot of good things to say about them. Praise God. must have been a healthy church. However, we're about to see here in verse 4 that Christ sees their hearts, and the one who sees the heart, the one who is the head of the church, had a different diagnosis from maybe the one that you and I might have. Verse 4 gives us Christ's condemnation. Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's the only bad thing you said about them, by the way. It was verse 4. The only one bad thing. They had left their first love. So here we have a church. Christ says a lot of good things about them. They're they're busy. They're separated. uh, They're sacrificing. They're working hard for the cause of Christ. And in the process, they're suffering because they're doing it all for the sake of Christ. But Jesus says they have a heart trouble. They have a heart problem. They had a heart trouble, heart problem. And this problem, by the way, is not an accident. Notice that the Bible doesn't say here that they lost their first love. It doesn't say that, does it? In verse 4, Jesus says you have left your first love. It doesn't say they lost it. Jesus said they left it. Why am I even bothering to point that out? Because the truth is they abandoned it. When you leave something, it's like like those people who used to do, they, they give birth to their babies and they walk up to the orphanage steps, knock on the orphanage door, leave their baby at the door, and walk away from their baby. They would abandon their baby. That's exactly what this church did with their first love. They knew exactly what they were doing. It was no accident. And I don't know about you, but as I read this, I find it quite scary. It, 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 it frightens me to think that you and I could be doing all the right things, supposedly in the name of Jesus, for the cause of Christ, and, and, and be busy serving Him, uh, You know, being involved in soul winning, involved in the church, the church can display all these, these good works, labor, patience, and these qualities can be not motivated for the love of Christ or by the love of Christ and other people. We can have the wrong motivation. D- does that scare you? It scares me to death. And so this brings us to a very vital lesson as we think about this, that why we do what we do is important We often tend to think what we do is important, and and don't get me wrong, that's true. What you do is important. But why you do it is also important. Please don't forget that. (laughs) Your motivation, your heart's desire in what you're doing is also important. You can do the right thing with the wrong motivation, can't you? We all do it. All the time. We can discipline our children for the wrong reasons. We can give gifts to our grandchildren for the wrong reasons. We can come to church for the wrong reason. We can read our Bibles for the wrong reasons. Okay, Those are all good things, but we can do all those things for the wrong reasons. But what is first love? Because Jesus says they had left their first love, so we need to understand what exactly is it that they abandoned. So what is first love? Well, here's what one commentator said. It's on the screen. I quote, It is the devotion to Christ that so often characterizes the new believer. It is fervent, personal, uninhibited, excited, and openly displayed. It is the honeymoon love of the husband and wife. End quote. I love the way he describes that. The honeymoon love of the husband and and wife. And those of you who are married, hopefully you understand what he's trying to describe here. Those of you who are married or have been married, do you understand that kind of honeymoon love? I do. And if you've forgotten that, maybe let me help you out a bit, okay? Because I remember my honeymoon. We just celebrated our 16th anniversary this past week. 16 years ago when I got married, I loved my wife, and I was, I was a bit like Thumper in the movie Bambi. You know, I was Twitterpated. You ever watch Bambi? The, you know the rabbit thumper, the rabbit. He was twitterpated. That's a great word. I love that word, twitterpated. He was in love. And, and what did love do to little old uh, thumper? Love caused him to do weird things. Love causes guys and sometimes women to do weird things sometimes. Be ready, Joe. It might affect you sometime. But, uh, you know, the hormones get going and we love somebody and love is blind sometimes, right? And we, all we can see is good. Oh, this angel I'm marrying who has no sin and can't do any wrong and and then sometimes in the future, you wake up and realize that person's not an angel, they're a human being just like me, and they're a sinner, just like me. But I remember when I got married, I was, I was Twitter-pated just, you know, just like Thumper, and I remember, uh, you know, we were, we'd go on our honeymoon, and there was only one person in the whole wide world, and it was my wife. There was no other people around, and I'd kiss her, and sometimes she'd get embarrassed, "Come on, there's other people. There are where." I don't care. I'm going to kiss you. I'm married to you now. I see this ring? I get to do this. And I'd do crazy things. I'd make her sit on my lap and sometimes she'd get a bit embarrassed. I love that sort of thing. It was just an uninhibited, openly displayed love. I didn't care if anybody saw it. I didn't care if, if the old married couples would look at us and say, oh, hey, they must be honeymooners. I didn't care. But now... You know, I I don't really do those kind of things as much as I did on a, on my honeymoon, which is a bit of a shame. You know, we need to get some spark in our marriages, I think. But anyway, that's another that's another sermon. But uh, here's the point, lest you miss the point. The commentator says often this first kind of a love is the kind of love that honeymooners have or new Christians have when they first get saved. You know, it's it's like the new Christian who who thinks, you know, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm going to go tell all my friends about Jesus. You know, this wonderful person, Jesus, who lived the life I should have lived, and died the death I should have died, and he rose again for me, he conquered the sin, paid my penalty for my sin, I love this Jesus, and I'm going to go tell all my my unsaved friends about Jesus, and they go, and and they can't believe they don't love Jesus. And they start getting burned by their friends, and they start losing their friends. And Eventually, what happens sometimes, this love they have for Jesus, when their first save starts dying off, and we become old, fuddy-duddy Christians who don't want to talk about Jesus anymore because it might hurt. You know what I'm talking about? That's sad. It shouldn't be that way. But God expects us to have this kind of a honeymoon type of a love. For him. It's for him. And so I ask you, do you? Do you? Is your love for Jesus Christ uninhibited? Is it fervent? Is it passionate? Is it openly displayed? Or are you <laughs> I remember hearing the testimony one of my friends, because I often ask people to write out their testimonies before they give their testimonies, before they become church members. Long, long time ago, a different church. I remember this, this woman said, you know, I, I've always kind of thought of myself as a secret agent Christian. What? What? Secret agent Christian? Undercover? You know, 007 kind of a Christian? No, there's not to be those kind of Christians. Everybody should know that you're a Christian. Should be obvious. Our love for Jesus should be openly displayed. It should be fervent and passionate. Now just think for a moment here. It's possible. Just as, as it was for this church, it's possible to serve, to sacrifice, suffer, to, to have the patience for his namesake, and yet not really loved Jesus Christ in the process. The Ephesian believers were that way. They were so busy trying to stay separated from the world. In the process, they abandoned the one whom they should have loved the most. In reality, their love for the truth and for doctrine and for serving became an idol. Do you understand that? Good things can become idols. It's not wrong to serve the church and to serve Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ must be loved most of all, not those things. So listen closely labor is no substitute for love. And so our church has to have both if we're to please God. You must have both, okay? Please understand, I don't want us to be unbalanced here. We should continue serving. I'm not suggesting those of you who are serving, I'm not suggesting you stop doing that. But the pendulum sometimes can swing way over to the other side, and then we say, oh, I'm supposed to love Jesus. And then we never do anything for Jesus. My friends, we're supposed to do everything for Jesus while loving him at the same time. That's the balanced Christian. You say, okay, well, how do I know if that describes me? How do I know if verse 4 describes me? How do I know if I have abandoned My first love for Jesus Christ? How do I know? That's a good question. You need to know the answer, don't you? Let me give you four signs. Four signs of leaving your first love. Notice I worded it as leaving because it it can sometimes be a process. You know, the person who decides, for example, to leave their baby on the doorstep of the orphanage uh, didn't just just happened to walk by an orphanage and say, oh, hey, an orphanage, I'll leave my baby here. No, it was, there was, there was a, a, a way of thinking. There was a process going on there. It was a step of, of thoughts and events and actions that took place to, to ultimately leading to that. And that's what happens in our lives. There are signs of leaving our first love. It's, it's a bit like a doctor diagnosing a, a disease. Sometimes there's things that start happening in your life. If you've got cancer or something, you start noticing things happening to you. Let me give you a few examples here. How do you know if, you've, if you are leaving your first love? Number one, you'll have a coolness of heart. A coolness of heart. In Matthew chapter 22, don't turn there, but in Matthew 22, there was this smart-aleck lawyer who came to Jesus one day, and he asked Jesus a very important question, a good question. He said, which is the greatest commandment? Is that a good question? Absolutely. It's a great question. Which is the greatest commandment? And how did Jesus answer it? Jesus answered the man by actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. So when you think about the answer to Jesus' question there, who really has first place in your life? Because that will help to answer the question. Who really has first place in your life? Number two, not only will you have a coolness of heart, you, you could possibly have a callousness towards sin. You might have a callousness toward sin. Things that maybe, for example, used to bother you may not bother you anymore. Let me just give you some practical examples. You know, maybe maybe when, you were, uh, when you were on fire for God. Maybe when you watched a movie, maybe you limited yourself to the PG movies or the M movies or whatever. And, and, and what happens sometimes is as we grow in our callousness towards sin, sometimes people start watching movies that have a lot more swearing and nudity and, uh, and violence and other things in it that, that increases the ratings of the movies. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to prescribe to you which rated movies you should watch, okay? I'll leave that with the Holy Spirit and you. But I'm just giving you as an example, sometimes we, we, we start going more and more closer to the world and, And profanity and these sort of things don't bother us like they used to. That's an example of callousness toward sin. Number three, maybe you have a contentment in your spiritual growth. Have you grown content in your spiritual growth? I hope not. I hope your attitude is just like the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting, as, as Paul grew in Christ and he writes in the the various letters to the churches and church leaders, his language changes. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. In 1 Timothy, he says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul was probably fairly healthy as a Christian. But he, had, he certainly didn't have a contentment in his spiritual growth, did he? He knew he was not like Jesus Christ yet. And he wanted to be more like him. And so should we. Number four, do you have a carelessness toward people? Do you have a carelessness toward people? Do you tend to see people as Jesus saw them? Do you have a passion and compassion, particularly for their souls, like Jesus did? and Jesus does. It's amazing what Paul said in Romans 9. He said, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Wow. That's a pretty bold statement to make. Never even crossed my mind to do that sort of thing. I'm certainly not willing to go to hell for the salvation of my countrymen. But it sounds like that's what he's saying there, doesn't it? He had incredible passion. He was not careless toward people, neither should we. And so you ask, well, okay, all right, I I can see some of these signs of leaving my first love in my life. Well, now what do I do then? If I'm on my way of leaving my first love, or if I've already abandoned my love for Christ, well, what do I do next? Is there hope? Is there hope? Yes, there's hope. Because Christ gives three instructions, three corrections here to readjust them to the way they should be. We see, starting in verse 5, the first one is the word remember. You see that in verse 5? Jesus said, remember therefore from where you have fallen. So in other words, he's he's saying go back to your past, remember your past. And this this word here literally means to keep on remembering. that's based on the greek language he says keep on remembering what you lost cultivate this desire to regain this close communion with christ again now why is this important because forgetfulness is often the initial cause of spiritual decline in our lives forgetfulness is often the 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 reason we decline we we forget that's what happened to the israelites when you read the Old Testament, notice how often the Bible says in the Old Testament, that in regards to the Israelites, it says, They forgot the works of God. Over and over again it says that. Because we love to criticize the Israelites, don't we? I mean, we say, those stiff-necked, you know, rebellious people. I mean, they're, how do they do that? I mean, they had the ten plagues in Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea. They saw God destroy the Egyptian army. They got the pillar of cloud and the fire by night to lead them to the promised land. God wipes out the promised land. He feeds them with manna. They see all this stuff, and we sit here and think, those idiots, how do they do that? And then they get to the promised land, and oh, there's giants in the land. We can't defeat them. Oh, please. And we, and we think, how do they do that? Why do they do that? God said they forgot his word. We do the same thing. We forget what God has done. And that's why I'm not good at this, but that's why some people, like uh, my own pastor, he keeps a journal. So that he doesn't forget the works of God. He can go back and he can see all the little things that, that just pile up, thousands of them, that these works of God that God has done in his life. Maybe we ought to do the same. So that we remember the past so that we don't leave our love for Christ. Number two, not only in verse 5 does it say to remember our past, but look what it says. The next next one is another R. It starts with the letter R. It says, repent and do the first works. So I'll use use the the scriptural language here. Not only should we remember our past, but we need to repent of our sins. When you recognize you have sinned against Christ by not loving him with all, you need to repent of that sin because it is a sin. In fact, remember, Jesus says it is the greatest commandment. You say, well, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind in regards to your sin. You, you, You now see sin as God sees it. You confess your sin, you turn from it, and you forsake that sin. Number three, what do you do next? Well, notice it says you remember, you repent, and then you do the first works. That's number three. Do the first works. In other words, repeat your best works. Repeat your best works. Go go down, Joe. Repeat your best works. And you say, well, what am I supposed to repeat? Well, the Scripture tells you do the first works. That's what Scripture says do the first works. Jesus Christ says to repeat those first works, if you will or the, the deeds that you did at first when you were first saved. Think about it. What, are, what, are, what about your emotions? What are, what about my emotions uh, here? Well, you say, well, what if I don't feel like doing those first works? <laughs> what if I don't feel like doing it? I mean, it's kind of hard to do something if I don't feel like doing it. Well, an act of the will often causes your emotions to follow behind them. Sometimes you just Do what you're supposed to do. I mean, how often do you feel like waking up on Monday morning and going to work? Many of us don't feel like waking up and going to work. We don't feel like getting up and doing something else. But sometimes you just do it because you know you're supposed to do it. And sometimes when you go out and do it, you're like, you know what? That wasn't so bad after all. Repeat your best works. For example... Maybe your personal devotions have started to die off. Your quiet time with God has started to get cold or a bit hard, and you feel like there's a, you know, there's a metal roof on the ceiling, and you're, you don't feel like praying. Or if you do pray, you, you feel like your prayers don't even make it past the ceiling. Your, your Bible reading seems lifeless and dead. Maybe there's no fervency in your prayer, or maybe, maybe you have a hard time coming to a church service, and you think, Man, Pastor Scott preaches a long time, and he actually uses the Bible. And uh, you know, this is hard for me to sit here in these these hard, you know plastic chairs in a cold room and place that's not that comfortable. And it's you know it's a bit hard. I understand. I'm, I can empathize. Maybe you're you're not so obedient in your service to the Lord like you used to be. Jesus says, repeat those first works. Just do it. Well, Jesus gave some <clears throat> chastening to this church. <clears throat> we'll end with this. Look at his chastening. And this chastening comes to those who do not re- repeat, to those who do not repent and those who do not, uh, <clears throat> sorry, those who, do re- those who don't remember, repent, and repeat. Jesus gives chastening in verse 5. He says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you Repent. Now, this is very serious. Christ demanded that, hey, you, you church at Ephesus, you need to change or you're going to be chastened. And failure to heed the warning is going to cause Jesus Christ to remove their lampstand, by the way, which is, is, a, is symbolic of the churches, remember? This lampstand represents their church. In other words, Jesus is going to snuff out their light unless they repent of their sin. The church that loses its love is going to lose its light. You know what? No matter how doctrinally sound they may be, no matter how uh, you know, much they're suffering for Christ, no matter what they're doing for Christ, if they lose their love, they abandon their love for Christ, they're going to lose the light. You know what? The reality is that's what happened to the church at Ephesus. I think I gave some pictures up here, didn't I, Joe? If you can see them. Keep going. Anyway, if you, you look up online, I looked up online, that you can see pictures. The city of Ephesus is just ruins. It's destroyed. I don't know if you can see that very good, but it's just, it's just a few stones laying around. That's about it that's left. There's no church there. There's no light there. Apparently, they didn't repent. So Jesus took their light. So what's Jesus' challenge? What's Christ's challenge here? Look at verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the letter closes with his exhortation, by the way, and it's also, there's also a promise here as well. Christ's exhortation is, if you have an ear, hear. <laughs> and so this emphasizes the sober responsibility that you and I have. If you're a believer, you have a sober responsibility to not just hear, here because those of you who have children or have had children you you know you say something the child heard it but they don't heed it there's a difference isn't there it, it's kind of like going in one ear and out the other my my son is this way and we continually have to okay look at me in the eyeballs please look me in the eyeballs i'm speaking to you i give the instruction Repeat the instruction back to me so you know you heard me. Christ has to do that to us sometimes, I think. Because sometimes we hear Christ. We know the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love him with all. We know that, but we don't do it. We hear, but we don't heed. There's a difference. And so this emphasizes the sober responsibility that believers have here to hear God's voice and obey it. Now here's the good news. Christ promise that those who overcome what do you get you get to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god where's that well it's not on earth (laughs) it's not on earth my friends the tree of life by the way first mentioned in genesis chapter 2 the context there being the garden of eden and the last time the tree of life is mentioned you know where The very last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. And so you ask, what is this all about? Well, the tree of life symbolizes eternal life. It's it's the paradise of God in heaven. So the one who perseveres, who endures to the end, gets to live with Jesus Christ in heaven. Christ is promising eternal life in heaven to all believers, and I can't think of a greater promise than that. So verse 7 makes it clear here, doesn't it, that yes, individual believers within a church, they, they can be true to the Lord no matter what others in the church are doing. So, so you know, don't point your fingers at others and say, hey, you know, you know, Susie and, and, uh, and, and John Smith over there, he's not, he's not obeying God. When you point your fingers, by the way, how many are pointing back at you? Just remember that. God sees you. He's going to hold you accountable. He's not going to hold other people in the church accountable for, for how they live. Or he will hold them accountable, sorry. But in, in general, the, the church of Ephesus was, as, as we started with, the church of loveless orthodoxy. They didn't have the love. They, they seemed to have everything else going for them, but they, they just abandoned their love for Christ. They were made up of these loveless believers, apparently, who neglected their love for Christ, and apparently for others as well. Well... That's a sad state, isn't it? Christ took their light from them. Apparently, that church ceased to exist shortly after this time period, and we have to ask ourselves, are we guilty of the same neglect? Are we? I am. I, I, I'll just be frank with you, I am at times. I have things that come in my life people and things and hobbies or whatever things that, that, that come between me and Christ, and my love for Christ. Those are idols. Of my heart. What do you do with an idol? You destroy it. (laughs) Do what Moses did when he came off the mountain. You destroy it. You remember the past. You repent of your sin and you repeat what you're supposed to do. That's what you do with an idol. You take care of it, don't you? You don't you don't coddle an idol and and, and stroke the idol and speak kind words to idols. No, you, you you do everything you can. As Jesus talked about in Matthew, if if there is something that is going to keep you from the kingdom of God, you cut it off. If your if your arm is going to keep you from going to heaven, cut your arm off. If your eyeball is going to keep you from going to heaven, pluck out your eyeball. Do, he's not recommending you do that literally. Okay, that's not the point. Please don't do that. You just look at Dion's fingers. Uh, maybe is that why you got that, brother? But anyway. I don't recommend that. The point that Jesus was making is you do everything that you possibly can to to repent of that sin. You get rid of the sin. You forsake the sin so you can have that right relationship with Jesus so the communion can return. So I urge you, my friends, ask God to search your hearts and return to him if you need to be. Let's pray.